Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the audio ministry of Lighthouse Baptist Church in Schenectady, New York. For more great content, please visit us at lighthousebaptist.org. Now let's open our hearts and minds to the Word of God. So next Sunday, Harry, is that on? Okay, cool. So next Sunday morning, right after the morning service, if we can uh, meet together upstairs, um, it shouldn't be very long, three to four hours tops. No, it'll be fairly quick. Most of us have gone through it before, done it before, so if you're interested in participating, if you're curious what we're doing, so am I, so come on, we'll figure it out together. So that'll be very good. So today I'd like to give a message uh, from the book of Mark, chapter number nine. Uh, it's a very maybe familiar uh, passage to you. The title is, I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief. And it's a, a message that I've been thinking about for uh, quite a while, uh, you know, what it means, uh, the amount of importance that it has. And really, I was thinking about it, just that one phrase, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. There's so much there that if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us has been in that spot before where we do believe, but we also acknowledge that we need help for our unbelief. So if everyone's there, we'll take a minute to uh, we'll pray, ask the Lord for guidance and direction and clarity um, this morning, and then we'll jump right in. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we have. Uh, we pray that you'd be with Pastor and uh, Pat while they're away, give them traveling mercies and a good time of uh, refreshment with their family. Father, for us today, we pray that you'd give me clarity of thought and speech and that you'd help us to be able to learn from your word what it is that you'd have for us today. As always, if there is one that's uh, here with us or listening uh, from a distance that hasn't been saved, I pray that you would show them from your word how important it is to be saved. Heaven is real, hell is real, and Father, your desire is that each one of your uh, people that were created in your image, you want them to spend eternity with you in heaven. Father, help the one that hasn't been saved yet to see their need and to repent, to ask you to forgive their sins, and to trust you that uh, you would be able to provide a home in heaven for them. For the rest of us today, I pray that you'd help us to listen, to uh, take other things out of our minds so we can focus on your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Mark uh, chapter 9 is where our text is going to be, and it's going to be verses 14 through 29. But by way of review, I'd like to go back a little bit to the end of Mark chapter 8. It's nice to know what the context is about. Uh, for Sunday school, we were in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2. Yes, I should know this, right? We were in 1 Peter chapter 2, and the very first word was wherefore. So as our Sunday school class can attest, whenever there's a wherefore or a therefore, you always go back and see what it's there for. The same thing with, um, with you know, preaching messages. It's good to see the overall context around it. That's a, a very good mechanism to keep you safe. So you're not just finding something that you think is there or reading into it. You're looking at the greater context and making sure that what you're saying actually lines up with God's word. So in Acts, um, Acts <laughs> in Mark number uh, chapter 8, verse 27, we'll see a little bit of background here. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of uh, Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, uh, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. Peter got a lot of things wrong in his life and ministry, 
But this one, he got right. This one, he nailed it. He got it right. He said, thou art the Christ. Peter got it right that day. All the other disciples heard Peter's proclamation that Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah. But they also heard a few verses later where Peter is told by Christ, by the Messiah, to get behind me, Satan, right? So Peter was back and forth, back and forth. But a short time later, uh, still as recorded in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it's the picture of the Mount of Transfiguration. And who is with Jesus? Peter, James, and John. And, you know, one of the uh, folks I was reading on, on this, they were saying, Peter, James, and John were, were with Christ so often. And, you know, we like to think it's because they were the inner circle, and that's probably true. But somebody else threw out the idea, maybe because they were the troublemakers, and you have to keep them close by, right? I'm going to go with the first part, but the second one just adds a little bit of color to it. So, but think about it. They are seeing so much. They are seeing, uh, they're experiencing Christ in a way that many of us literally today can only read about. They had the, the availability to speak with him. They were with him all the time, and they had so much to learn. Uh, Jesus takes Peter along with James and John into a high mountain where they witness the transfiguration of Jesus. They see uh, Moses, they see Elijah, and there they hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, if you heard somebody say, this is my beloved son, hear him, what do you think the next thing, the next action you might take would be? Listen, right? That's, that's a pretty big attention getter. As, by, as a means of attention getting, there's some things that we can try, right? Uh, here, God the Father speaks audibly and says, this is my beloved son, hear him. There's not much I can do to try to top that. Downstairs with the kids, you know, if we really want to get their attention, it usually involves lighting something on fire. Um, not that we do that very often. We usually provide a warning to other folks first, but that is a pretty good attention getter, right? That gets their attention. But here, there's nothing else really that could have been more of an attention getter for Peter, James, and John. We read through this as we do the other miracles of the Bible, but if we're not careful, we can sort of gloss over it. You know, oh, Peter walked on water, that's great. I wonder what's for lunch today at the diner. You know, we can just kind of gloss right over things. We have to be careful not to do that. Following the mountaintop experience that they had, and it was literally a mountaintop experience, what happens? Well, they have to come down off the mountain and back into the valley. And the same thing happens with us spiritually We'll have a mountaintop experience. Things will be going fantastic, will be going so great. And then what happens? Well, then you have to descend back down into the valley. And then it feels like you stay in the valley for a little bit. And then you start working your way back up out of the valley towards the mountains. And where does the most learning take place? Does it take place on the mountaintop? No, it takes place down in the valley. When you're getting through the hard knocks, when you're trying to figure out, how do I make this faith work? How do I make this... How do I reconcile what I see versus what I believe and know to be true? And that's where we really find out who we are. That's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where we learn and we grow in our, our faith walk. We've been talking uh, last Wednesday night, and it's going to be more this Wednesday night, about Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament, about how every one of them mocked God's word. Abraham, Sarah, Lot, and Ishmael, they mocked. They laughed at God's promise and plan. And we think... The first couple of the faith did that? Yes, they did. But they were also included in the uh, hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So if there's hope for them, there's hope for us. And the growth that we have can keep going in spite of 
you know, stumbling blocks and things that get in our way. So what I want to talk about today is we can pick up in verse number 14. So the picture here is he comes down off the mountain. They just had this excellent, you know, experience. And then they're coming down the mountain back to reality. Back in March, uh, Jess and I got to go to Florida for the enrichment conference, and it was great. We flew down to this nice warm place, away from the cold place. Um, Jess's grandparents and my mom were you know, gracious enough to come and take care of our kids, so we didn't have any responsibility. All we had to do was be to a place on time to eat, and it was fantastic. But like every really great thing, it has to come to an end. And then we flew back in, and it was 70, 80 degrees down there. How warm was it up here in March? Nobody remembers. I try to block out painful things too, you know. But you have to go back to reality. You can't stay on the mountaintop all the time. And here we see what happens. Verse 14, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they uh, beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. Saluted has the idea of embraced. Hey, it's great to see you. You know, it's, it's incredible. It's quite the reception. And verse number 16, and he asked the scribes, what question he with them? So the scribes and the Pharisees, as we've seen you know, many times throughout scripture, they're always, for the most part, looking for ways to disparage Jesus. There were some scribes and Pharisees that got saved, but a lot of them were upset at the change in order that was happening. They were upset at the people, the general populace, instead of following and listening to the scribes and Pharisees, they were now starting to follow Jesus and his disciples because the disciples were given the power and ability to do miracles, to do healing, you know, great things were happening. So any chance they could find to disparage or discourage people from following the disciples or Jesus, they would take advantage of it. So that's where we find ourselves today. Jesus comes, comes down off the mountain along with Peter, James, and John. He walks into a bit of a fury. He sees all these people gathered around he sees the scribes questioning the disciples. He sees the general population kind of back and forth, back and forth like that, trying to see what's going on. There's a great multitude, and he asks the question. Now, is there ever a question that Jesus asks that he doesn't already know the answer to? No, he knows the answer. It's like if you go home and your kids or your pets made a mess of the house, and you say, who did this? And if it's a pet, you really shouldn't expect an audible answer. But if it's the kids, then you really should expect an audible answer, but what happens? Well, you don't have to know who did it because you already know who did it. So here we see Jesus asked one of his scribes, one of the scribes, he says, what's going on here? What are the questions about? And we see the answer in verse 17. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and he pineth away, and I spake to thy disciples uh, that they should cast him out, and they could not. So the picture is, is pretty clear. The scribes and Pharisees were taking opportunity to point out that these disciples couldn't cast out this evil spirit. The evil spirit was very powerful. It was causing all kinds of uh, trauma to this, uh, this you know, young man or child. And they were saying, look at these disciples. They can't even do this basic task of casting out an evil spirit. But also, who else couldn't cast out the evil spirit? Were the scribes and Pharisees able to cast out the evil spirit? No. So they were picking on the disciples for not doing something that they also couldn't do. Uh, again, they're taking every chance they could to disparage and discourage folks from following the disciples. Not too far back, the disciples 
saw, I'm sorry, the um, scribes and Pharisees saw the disciples eating with unwashed hands. And they got all excited about that. They said, they're, they're eating with unwashed hands, right? And then Jesus talks to them and says, well, have you not heard when David was hungry, you know, his men went and ate the showbread, right? So there's some things that are more important than others. And eating with unwashed hands, though we would frown upon that today, it's not something that is incredibly important to the point where you shouldn't follow somebody anymore because of that. But again, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to discredit. They're trying to get folks to stop following Jesus or his disciples. So they're trying to look good while disparaging others. Now, does that happen today at all? Do people you know, try to put others down so they can look better? Absolutely. Do people abuse their authority to make themselves look good? Yeah, in fact, this week I read an article about a storekeeper in California, and he has a small store, a sandwich shop. He had a little fold-up sign that he put out in front of the store with an American flag. And he had gotten three notices from City Hall that his sandwich sign was two inches too far out. Okay, that's a valid concern. But you know what else was a valid concern to the shop owner? The rampant homelessness and drug use that was happening all around his shop. And he's called City Hall and says, hey, is there anything that can be done about this? They haven't done anything about that. They're grasping at the little tiny things that really have no meaning. And the, the uh, scribes and Pharisees were doing the same thing here. It points to their true motivation of desiring prominence instead of helping those in need. So unlike the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus is both willing and able to assist. If you look at verse 19, he answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring them unto me. Now there's some words of endearment in the Bible, but these words here are not quite words of endearment. Jesus rebukes them as a faithless generation and says, how long do I have to put up with this? Have you ever been, maybe you were the teacher, maybe you were the student, but have you ever been in a class where the teacher was clearly frustrated? Maybe the results of a test came back and the teacher says, you should know this, right? That happened to one of the computer classes I was in. The entire class as a whole did really terrible. And for us, we were happy because that meant we might get a curve. But the teacher was incredibly frustrated. The teacher saying, you should know this. And why don't you know this? And we're all you know, kind of half looking at each other thinking, you're right, we probably should. But what do we do from here, right? It wasn't a good situation. And we find a very similar thing here. Um, this happened. Uh, sorry. Uh, it's clearly our class needed some extra help. And this example is a great picture also of our faith life. There's a lot of things we run into where we should be further down the road. As we touched on in Sunday school, you know, we should have a desire of God's word that's similar to a baby desiring you know, milk so that they may grow and grow strong and get big and able to handle things on their own. But if we don't have a desire for God's word, we're not going to have a desire to grow. If we don't hold Christ as being precious in our minds and our sight, then we're not going to have a desire for God's word. They're all built on top of each other. <clears throat> so my question here is, who is included in, this, in the term faithless generation? And now is not a time you want to raise your hand. You know, pick me, pick me, right? Technically, there's three different groups here. Group number one, scribes and Pharisees who were called out for possessing the knowledge of the scriptures, but not receiving Christ as Messiah. By and large, they rejected him. They didn't want to lose their position. Again, I, I didn't mean for it to work out this way, but it did. Tying back to Sunday school, 
that was the cornerstone that was rejected. And we said in Sunday school, if you reject that cornerstone, it's going to ground you down. It's going to grind you into powder. So they are among, they are acting without faith. They are faithless. The second group of people included in the faithless generation is the disciples. The disciples are, were called out for having been with Jesus, but still not grasping the power he has provided them, and specifically through faith. What they lacked compared to the Pharisees in their formal education, they more than received in, we'll call it on-the-job training, by going with Jesus, by seeing the miracles he had done, seeing all that he had performed. So consider this, uh, back to Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Uh, here we see, the Bible says, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal, uh, power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And we'll think of this as one step forward. The 12 disciples were given power. They were not just faith, but actual power to go heal sicknesses and illness, cast out devils. So they were given that. Jump ahead to Mark chapter 4, 37 through 40. This is where they're on the uh, ship in the Sea of Galilee. Then there arose a great storm, and they were in a little ship. Uh, they get nervous. They cry out, Carest thou not that we perish? Jesus says, Peace be still. He calms the storm. The winds cease. But he looks at them and says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have so little faith? And just as in our lives, we'll have one step forward. We'll have a step back. Here, I called it one step back. So we'll look at one more step. Uh, Mark 6 uh, seven and verses 12 and 13. And again, he called unto them the 12 and began to send them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil, many that were sick and healed them. So one more step forward. So here clearly we can see the disciples were given the power to cast out demons, cast out evil spirits, to heal. It was an extension of Jesus' ministry to establish Jesus as the Messiah. Now, there will be those that say today that they are an apostle or a disciple and they can go do these things. But if they really could, then they really should. But because they can't, they won't, right? And if you don't understand that, we can talk about it a little bit later. But this was a sign gift. This was something to show and validate Jesus as the Messiah. Group number three of the folks included in the faithless generation is the father of the son who is possessed by an evil spirit. As we'll soon see, he at least admits he's trying, right? If I was a teacher, I would much rather have a class of kids that maybe aren't the brightest, maybe struggle academically, but they have a desire to learn. Because at least them you can take and you can, you can mold them and you can get them going in the right direction. I've had some friends who are really bright, but they were so bright they became arrogant. And they said, no, I have nothing to learn. And then you know what happens? They had nothing to learn, so they didn't. And they end up not, pursue, not progressing in life. And you look back and say, well, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box or whatever, but you know, I'm doing okay. You know, what happened? What happened is because they were unwilling to learn. Here, this father, he's willing to learn. He's, he's trying. He has that growing faith that we should strive for. In fairness, Jesus, by using the term faithless generation, is calling out everyone. Everyone is part of the generation. The idea is it's a multitude of men living at the same time. So he's calling out to the larger group, why can't you believe? Why is there such a lack of faith? And to offer a bit of encouragement, it's the same struggles with faith. 
that are present in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament phenomenon, right? We can look back as we you know, talked, uh, touched on Wednesday night, you know, mocking God is no laughing matter. Here we have the founding family of faith struggling to obey, right? If Abraham and Sarah had a problem with it, it's, is it any big surprise that we're gonna struggle with faith? Absolutely not. But it matters what we do with our struggle. Do we throw up our hands and say, that's it, I'm done? Or do we continue, continue, and continue? Continuing is the best way to do it. They had a growing faith, and so should we. Here's a shameless plug for Wednesday night. Make sure you're here next Wednesday night so you can hear the outcome. You can see what happens to Abraham and Sarah. So to continue here, we'll keep going back to uh, Mark chapter 9. It's important to see that Jesus does not just rebuke for the sake of rebuking. We all know somebody who just kind of blows up when they get mad, and hopefully it's not us, but when we do, we should say we're sorry, apologize. But Jesus doesn't rebuke just to rebuke. He rebukes to be able to share with them a lesson and help them to learn so they can grow and not have the same problem again. Uh, what does he say? Well, he wants them to learn. He wants them to learn the lesson. Instead of being faithless and driven by fear, we should be full of faith and driven by faith. Now, that's easier said than done, admittedly. But again, whenever we find Jesus rebuking others in the Gospels, it's for their own good. We should see... Uh, how those words apply to us. We can take it and learn the lessons that they have. Uh, maybe, you know, growing up, you had some friends that did some pretty foolish things. And, you know, maybe they ended up with a broken arm or a broken leg in the summertime. And you're thinking, well, that really wasn't smart. Did you learn from their example? Did you also end up with a broken arm or broken leg? No, because you learned from their example. There's some things we have to learn on our own, but there's a whole lot more we can learn by somebody else's example whether that's bad or good. And you know, insurance companies are probably happy when people learn from other people's examples, you know, put seatbelts on, wear helmets, the basic things like that. So to continue on here, uh, we're gonna see what Jesus does next. Um, what he's about to do will certainly strengthen the faith of the Father and disciples and possibly others in the multitude who were undecided to this point. The end of verse 19, Jesus says, bring him unto me now, for us, paint a picture in your mind of the description you're about to see in verses 20 through 22. And they brought him unto him. They brought the, de the uh, demon-possessed or the child possessed with evil spirits. They brought him unto him, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked the, his father, Jesus asking the father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it had cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has had to deal with an evil spirit. If you go back to the book of Mark, chapter 5, they land, the ship, you know, anchors in Gadara. As soon as he gets off the ship, who is he met with? He's met with the maniac of Gadara. The unclean spirit called out Jesus by name back in Matthew chapter, or Mark, chapter 5, and according to certain superstitions of the day, if the spirit called out by name the person who was going to cast out the spirit, it was a way by which the spirit was going to try to intimidate that person or try to make it to where they couldn't, you know, they would basically have power over them. So the unclean spirit calls out Jesus by name and he tries to intimidate him. He tries to render him powerless. But does that phase Jesus? Absolutely not. Jesus continues on and he finds out, he goes, what is thy name? 
and he says legion. So again, if you're going to try to intimidate somebody, you'll say legion. Legion was representative of a Roman army group. It was like 6,000 people, right? And there may not have been 6,000 uh, evil spirits present, but there was enough to control about 2,000 pigs as they're cast in, you know, went running into the ocean. So again, it was intimidation tactics, trying to intimidate Jesus, preventing him from casting out the uh, evil spirits. So returning to Mark 9.20, we'll see this is nothing new for Jesus to deal with. We see the evil spirit trying the same style of intimidation tactics, sensing the presence of Jesus. Uh, the boy doesn't just walk up. The boy comes in and the evil spirit is basically showing off, trying to act as awful, as terrible as possible because he knows his time is short. He causes the son to tear or convulse. He falls on the ground, he's wallowing, he's rolling around, he's foaming at the mouth. Think about the poor father in this whole situation. While his father looking on says, this has happened since he was a child, and sometimes the spirit tries to drown him or burn him with fire. Do you think that father was really encouraged at this point? No, the father was probably discouraged. The father loves his son. The father doesn't want to see his son going through this anymore. And as a side note, destruction is the goal of an evil spirit. An evil spirit knows that every human being is created in the image of God. An evil spirit knows that if they can control it, they can sort of put a black eye on that image of God. They can control it, they can cause it harm, they can make it do embarrassing things. And it's a way for Satan to, you know, try to sock it to, to use the term, try to sock it to the Lord, say, ha ha, I'm controlling one of your created beings, look what I'm doing. And they know they're not gonna win in the end, but it doesn't stop them from trying to be as terrible and taking down as many as possible. It's the same thing, you know, today, where we may not be consumed uh, as often as you know, folks in the New Testament here by evil spirits, but if the, the Satan can get a hold of us, if he can cause us to do things, if he can make us be a stain on the name of Christ, he's gonna do it, he's gonna use every tool he has to do that. So keep those, those thoughts in mind. Uh, the Father's next words are ones that should resonate with each of us as they are words of a desperate man a desperate father who loves his son, asking Jesus directly, if thou canst do anything, anything at all, have compassion on us and help us. It's easy to understand the level of defeat in the father's voice. His son has not gotten better. His son is maybe have good days, maybe has worse days. Oh, he only got burned twice this week. That's really good. That's something that no father ever wants to have to deal with but he's desperate, he's asking. It's almost as if he's saying, I don't know that anyone could do anything for him, but I'm still willing to ask you, Jesus. He's desperate. Contrast this to another if found in Mark chapter five, verse 25. The Bible says, Mark five, uh, verse 25, and a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, make sure you get this, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be made whole. See, in her mind, all she had to do was go touch his garment and she would be healed. She had that belief. She had that faith in Christ. She knew who he was. She heard enough about him to seal it in her mind. This is Jesus. He can heal me. 
None of these physicians could heal me for 12 years. They took all my money. I have nothing left. They took my hope. I have nothing left, but Jesus can do it. And if I just go touch his hem of his garment, I will be healed. So the same word, if, but different strategy behind it. She was convinced that he could do it, where the father, he wasn't quite there yet. The father was discouraged. The father was thinking, if there's anything you can do, help out. So we see the different level right there that she was on. And what happens to her? Well, and straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? Verse 32, and he looked uh, round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. So we see it comes down to faith. Her faith in Christ caused her to take action and it wasn't anything crazy, right? She didn't have to do some crazy or ridiculous thing. Her faith simply caused her to act. She must have known or heard Jesus was coming through and she said, I'm going to do this. I'm putting all my eggs in the basket that Jesus will be able to heal me and he did by faith. The father was not, not quite there yet, but he was going to get there. So what's the difference? Her if caused her to do something, convincing her quite literally to reach out to Jesus. You know, we'll try so many other different things, but when somebody says, did you pray about it? What's our reaction? Well, hmm, we should pray about it first, right? There's been times where I've been trying to do things and, you know, you're Guys like to just have a plan and get things done, rah, 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 right? But when that fails, then you feel like a failure. And then somebody, most often your wife, comes along and says, well, did you pray about it? You know. And of course, you should have done that first. But that's when you say, no, you're right. And then you pray about it and say, Lord, open my eyes. Show me how to do this. Show me what the best way to do here is. And if the Lord wants you to do it, he'll show you the way to do it. If, it's, if the answer is no, then we have to be willing to receive that answer of no at the same time. So the point is, we need to ask in faith and literally reach out to Jesus. If not physically, then through prayer, asking for his help. In her case, it was her faith that had caused her to act. And as Jesus tells her, it was her faith in Jesus that made her whole. So returning to Mark 9, Jesus answers the father's question with a question of his own. You know, remember, the father says, if you can do anything, anything at all to help, I'll be ready for it. And in verse 23, Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. So countering the question of, can you do anything to help? Jesus says, well, can you believe I can help you, right? If we're not gonna believe that Jesus can do stuff for us, then our prayers aren't gonna go very far. Uh, believe here means to trust in Jesus or God as able to aid either in obtaining or in doing something. You know, for uh, long term, for eternity, for instance, it's salvation. Believing that Christ can forgive our sins and give us eternal salvation. For something more temporal, do we believe that God can give us wisdom for a decision we have to make? Do we believe that God can heal us or our loved ones? Do we believe that he can help us through whatever struggles we find ourselves facing? Another example of believing also from Mark 5 is a man named Jairus. 
who was a ruler of the synagogue and came to Jesus saying his little daughter was at the point of death. He asked Jesus to come lay hands on her so she may be healed and live. And Jesus went to help her, but it was as Jesus was going to help her that he was you know, touched by the woman with the issue of blood and he stops and heals her. But then before he even gets to Jairus's house, they get word from Jairus's servant saying, you know, don't bother the master anymore, your daughter has died. And Jesus, he doesn't offer words of sorrow, but he offers words of encouragement. He says, be not afraid, only believe. There's that pesky word again. There's that pesky word, believe. We have the option, we have the choice. Are we going to believe or not? Are we going to have a life of faith or not, right? It's up to us. So what what happens? Well, be not afraid, only believe. They arrive shortly uh, thereafter. Jesus raises her from the dead. They believe, they see tremendous results. We have a life of faith, we have tremendous results. Returning to Mark 9, I want you to see how Jesus responds. He goes, you asked me if there's anything I can do to help. I ask you, do you believe? Do you trust me? And that's what it comes down to. Do we trust God that he is who he says he is? Do we trust him that he can heal according to his will, that he can answer our prayers? Jesus saith unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And I love the Father's response. It's a response that many of us have said, whether you know, through solid speech or cried out, to be honest with you. He says, verse 24, and straightway, immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. There's not much more human emotion statement than that. Lord, I believe I'm using everything I have, everything I have in my heart and mind to believe you, but this is a big one and I need help, Lord. I need help to, to believe fully. Have you prayed a prayer like that? Somewhat out of faith, but mostly out of maybe desperation or discouragement. You know, you don't know how things are gonna work out. You don't know how that relationship is gonna be healed, that situation is gonna be fixed. I have a couple questions here. Number one, maybe you're struggling in life trying to determine which direction to go. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Number two, maybe it's a friend, family member, or child that you've been praying for for years for their salvation, for their healing, for their direction. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Third one, maybe you have a financial situation that despite your best efforts, your best planning, and your best you know, ability to live frugally, it's caused you nothing but continued stress and worsening stress. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I like this one. Maybe you're trying to lead six million people out of captivity and have mountains to the right and left of you, a sea of water directly in front of you, and an army coming up pretty quick from the rear. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Christine, that was Moses just to, okay, she got that. Okay, good, good. All right, number five here. Maybe you've been promised by God multiple times that you will be the father of many nations, and it's been almost 25 years, and you and your wife still do not have the promised heir. More about this on Wednesday, in case you're curious, but Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. We all, each one of us, every person here, has been in the spot where we need help with our unbelief. And the best action we can take is to say what the Father said humbly, Lord, I believe, I really, I fully do, but Lord, I need your help. And there's nothing wrong with coming to the Lord. You're not doubting the Lord, you're being honest with the Lord. 
And I would rather have somebody be honest with me than to assume, right? Because when you assume, things get messed up. You know, if I said, hey, do you know how to do this? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And then you find out real quick they don't know how to do it, and it's a mess, and now it has to be cleaned up. It's much better to be honest and say, Lord, I'm coming to you. I've, I've read your word. I know who you are. I know your character, and I believe you can do this. But I need help, Lord. My flesh is weak. I need help. I need you to help with my unbelief. And the father does this. He goes, help my faith in you to grow stronger. Help me to trust you more. Help thou with my unbelief. Give me victory over my unbelief. And what I'm not saying today is that there's a pill we can take, that if you take this pill every day with a glass of water, that it's going to just strengthen you and make you an awesome Christian. This kind of help that he's asking for, it's not a handout. It's literally a hand up. It's help me, Lord, in my day-to-day life to grow to where I can believe you more, I can trust you more. It's demonstrated by folks like Abraham and Sarah. It's a growing faith. It's a deepening belief in the power of God that should get stronger through each day and through each trial. The more of those valley and climbing back up experiences we have, the more we can put in our notebook, our tablet, or whatever you want to call it, and say, Lord, you're helping me. You're helping strengthen my faith. You're helping me with my unbelief. Hopefully my column of belief is getting taller and my unbelief is getting shorter. There's still going to be times where I question, but those times can be quickly covered by me remembering what you've done in the past for me. Lord, I believe. Help thou by unbelief. So let's return one last time to Mark 9 to see how Jesus responds to this father who cried out, stating, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Verse 25 When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. Pretty clear. Verse 27, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. That's the answer, prayer and fasting. These were people, these were disciples that were specifically given power by Jesus to go cast out demons, evil spirits, to see healing take place. You know, we talked about that in Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6. These weren't uh, charlatans or charlatans like some people today where they can say, I'll heal you. And, you know, what is your condition? Oh, it's ringing of my ears. Oh, well, that's a tough one, right? These were real things that people were getting healed of. Blindness, palsy, all kinds of terrible things, you know, bringing people back to life. Though it was real, it was quantifiable. You could see it. It wasn't something that was easily faked. But he said, You couldn't do it because of a lack of prayer and fasting. Now, a note on fasting, um, quoting here, in the New Testament, fasting was often prayer so focused and intense that a person did not give attention to things like eating or drinking. It was so focused on prayer, they wanted to block everything else out. But here, Jesus is emphasizing that the demon in Mark 9 could only come out with intensive prayer. As Jesus explains to the crowd, the key was faith, of those involved, the faith of those involved. So it is evident that prayer rooted in faith in Jesus Christ is effective, and Jesus was challenging the crowd, 
the boy's father, the disciples, on the importance of believing in him as the one who could accomplish what would otherwise be impossible. Whatever your request is, we are reminded to keep our faith. James uh, 1, 6 uh, through 8 says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So we should keep our faith, and we should know that our requests, if they are according to his will, will be both heard and acted upon. Uh, 1 John 5, 14 and 15 Uh, The Bible says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. So we have the confidence there that if we have faith, God will hear us. Now, he will not always answer the prayer according to our will, to our will, but he'll always answer according to his will. And there's been times and it's been in my life, my personal life, I'm sure in your personal lives too. Somebody is sick and you pray for them and you pray for them and they still, they still die, right? Is that God failing? No, that was God's will. But we can still intervene. We can still pray fervently for God's will to be done. And if we're praying God's will, God will hear us and he will answer it and he will act upon it. Is it God's will for every man and woman and child to be saved? Absolutely. So should we pray for our relatives? Should we pray for our friends? Should we pray for that annoying neighbor down the street to be saved? Yes. And then we should pray for ourselves to try to be nice to the annoying neighbor, okay? But pray by faith. Uh, don't misconstrue this to say that, you know, there, there are people out there that say, well, if you pray for something and it doesn't happen, then you didn't pray hard enough. And that's a really terrible thing to tell somebody because... There are certain groups out there that say, well, you didn't receive healing because you didn't pray hard enough. Your four-year-old child died because you didn't pray hard enough. But by the way, send me some more money, right? That's a terrible, terrible thing, and that's not what we're talking about here. What we are talking about is the effectual, fervent prayer of people praying, asking God to, to intervene in a way only he can do, and believing that he can do that if it is according to his will. So... My challenge uh, for, both, for you today is to not be afraid to cry out to the Lord and be honest, freely declaring both your belief and your unbelief. Somebody who is struggling with their faith, that's one of the best prayers they can do is say, God, I'm struggling here. I'm, I'm trying. I'm doing my very best, but I need you to show yourself strong in this. They're not asking for a handout. They're asking for a handout. They're asking for God to come and help them. And that's what the Father did. That's what many people in Scripture have done. So declare your, unbe- your belief and your unbelief, asking him to help you with your unbelief, then making sure that you're doing your part. Are you doing your part by trusting uh, with the path that you do know? Are you doing what you know is right to do? Uh, as we talked on in Sunday school again, our job as Christians is to be in God's word, is to have a desire to be in God's word so we can grow our faith. You know, we shouldn't be surprised by little things that are covered in the text when, you know, we, when we come across them. You know, we shouldn't be surprised by things, oh, I thought if I was a Christian, only good things would happen to me. Well, if you look in God's word, you find out that's really not the case, right? So 
the more we can help ourselves by reading the manual, imagine that, the better off we'll be, the stronger our faith will be. So when we have these big things, we can go to God with confidence that he'll hear us and we'll be versed in the Bible to be able to find the answers that we need. So that's the challenge for today is don't be afraid to cry out, admitting that there's, you know, declaring your unbelief. Say, God, I know, I believe, I am trying, but Father, help me. There's nothing wrong with that. For those that have had kids or have worked with kids, it's really cool when a kid comes to you and says, I need help, right? And you can say, well, what have you tried to do to fix the problem? Well, I did this and this and this, and it shows that they're really trying on their own. It shows that they're not being lazy. They're really working to find that right answer. And then what do you do? You encourage them. You give them a little bit of help, and you get them to the point where they get the answer they need. And what does that do for them? Well, that encourages them like you wouldn't believe. That gives them confidence so the next time when there's a bigger problem, bigger challenge, they can face that head on in faith that they can find the answer as opposed to running away from it in fear, being concerned that they'll never get it right. So that's the challenge for those that are saved. Bring your, your, um, your belief and your unbelief to the Lord and he can help you. But I have a challenge too for anyone here that's not saved. Anyone that may be listening, uh, listening in. A moment ago I read 1 John 5, 14 and 15. It talks about the confidence we have knowing that God hears us. But I wanna share in closing just two more, a couple more verses from First uh, John 5, uh, it talks about how we may know that we can have eternal life. First John chapter 5, 11 through 13, the Bible says, and this is the record that God hath given uh, to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe, there's that word again, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So belief, faith, and trust are a trifecta. They fit together like you wouldn't believe. I shouldn't have said that. Belief, faith, and trust fit together very, very well, right? We need to have those three pieces to make our lives even close to being tolerable. If you, I, I feel badly for people that think that they're on their own in the world, that think that there is no purpose for life I think there, there is no uh, personal loving God who cares for them, that has a plan for them. Because they look around and they think, well, this is narcissism. There's no point for living. Why should I even continue? If they don't have Christ, they don't have anything. So it's our job to share Christ with them. It's our job to live in such a way that we can make sure we're on the right path so we can then help others. Let's pray and um, we'll continue. Father, we thank you for this time and pray that uh, you help us to be honest with you. Uh, sometimes we're not very honest with each other. We say, oh, things are fine, things are great, but when in reality, things are, are one very small step away from collapsing on us in a very bad way. I pray that you'd help us to, to be honest with you, to reach out uh, just as the woman did with the issue of blood. She knew that you could solve her problems, that you could heal her, and that you were willing to do so. I pray that you would help us to, again, just be honest with you, say we're struggling, we're over struggling, and ask for your help, ask for your wisdom. And then we pray that you'd help us to be able to do the same thing for those around us that don't know you. Uh, we pray that you'd help them to be receptive, help them to listen, and help them to have the confidence from 1 John, knowing that you hear our prayers 
and knowing that you are the Son of God, the only one that can offer the gift of salvation. Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for loving us and wanting to be involved with us, even in our current condition. We ask in Jesus' name. We hope that message was an encouragement to you. To stay up to date with us, please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC Schenectady. If you would like more information on how heaven can be your home, please visit lighthousebaptist.org slash the gospel.